Hello and welcome to the Liminal Gallery podcast with me, the founder and director of Liminal, Louise Fitzjohn. podcast is an opportunity to speak to the contemporary artists I'm exhibiting in my Margate-based art gallery. With an exciting programme of solo and group exhibitions, hosting this podcast is a fantastic way to delve deeper into the artist's practice and to probe their innermost thoughts about their exhibitions. Liminal Gallery was founded in April 2021 and works with contemporary artists currently practising across the UK and Ireland, showing the incredibly diverse creatives that are based here. I've been working in the art world for over a decade and I'm incredibly passionate about fully supporting the artists that I work with and I spend most of my time trawling through social media to find artworks which blow my socks off. The artists I work with have an approach which I haven't seen before, a unique talent which spans across the mediums. I'm so excited to share these artists with you as we have in-depth conversations exploring the artists' lives and works into what makes them tick and what gets a ticking off. So I hope you'll join me both on this podcast and down in Margate where you can see the exhibitions of these artists in person. I'm delighted to share that the 20th guest on the Liminal Gallery podcast is contemporary artist Mercedes Workman. Her practice is a response to her overactive mind. She works both fast and determinedly. There is a beautiful immediacy to her work as if she works feverishly to extract images from her mind into her ceramics, giving them form and life. This enriches her work with so much personality, as well as the obvious signs of the artist's hand. They are made by human hands and their wonky aesthetics cement this as well as giving them a real charm. Reoccurring themes in her work include relationships, interactions, perceptions, judgments, idiosyncrasies and cliches, particularly around womanhood and motherhood. Her practice centres around her passion for ceramics combined with drawing from life and illustrative work expressed in vigorous brushwork and mark making. She says, I hope to create something familiar and comforting with an energy that's easy to live with. Mercedes Workman lives and works in Margate, Kent. I moved here almost nine years ago when there was little more here than a local pub and a shop. She is a wealth of knowledge about Margate's incredible transformation over these past years. She has recently had a solo exhibition, ABC of Me, at Tracy Emin's TKE Studios in Margate, where she is also a studio holder. Alongside her current solo exhibition in the cupboard at Liminal Gallery, she is also included in a group exhibition, Small is Beautiful, at Flowers Gallery in Cork Street. Her work has been collected by prominent names such as Tracy Emin, Russell Tovey, Millie Brady and Christine and the Queens. Mercedes Workman, thank you so much for joining me today. Lovely introduction. Lovely. I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll repeat it for you later. So as I said in the intro, you live and work in Margate and you moved here nine years ago. So you've seen a lot of changes here. What originally brought you here and are you glad you stuck it out for so long? Yes, I'm very glad I stuck it out for so long. I'm originally from Kent. So I moved to London when I was 18 to go up to art school, which wasn't a very successful objective in the end but I did 10 years in London and then I had my first child and property prices were affordable in Margate so we moved here 
and yeah, it's been amazing, really, but both for me creatively and also, you know, raising a family. I've had twins since I've got three girls. And as you know, living by the sea is just so brilliant for children. And also, I think so brilliant for most people, to be honest. So yeah, I love it. Love it, love it. Did you love it when you first moved here? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was really tough, actually. We moved in October. My husband at the time was still working in London a lot, so he was away a lot. And I had a four-month-old baby, and there wasn't a cafe that I could put my child down. Is I think, probably the best description. It was like, no way you could just take your child to put on the floor. Do you know what I mean? Like, it wasn't... There just wasn't that. There was a lot of church group, play groups that I would go to, but they were also... I just felt quite bleak, I suppose. Um, I didn't really know anyone. And I also, I'd had my first child, I was 27, and I wasn't at all comfortable with being a new mum either. So I think it kind of all, that kind of perfect storm was a difficult first year of motherhood, basically. And I, I was diagnosed with postnatal depression shortly, sort of during the first year of living here, which I don't think is anything to do with Margate, but I think probably... My brain, coupled with a lot of those decisions, was what created that. So um, it was difficult, but actually, I sort of feel like the fact that I had to work so hard to love it has helped me love it. If that makes sense, it's given back. So yeah, that sounded really bleak. I didn't mean for it to sound so bleak. <laughs> I think we got. It was probably a lot to do with that isolation as well. Yes, exactly. If you didn't really know anyone here. It's quite hard, isn't it? I know quite a lot of people that have found it quite difficult to meet people it doesn't matter really matter where they move you know like when you move into a new place especially as a new mum you lose so much of your confidence as well to actually make friends yeah exactly it's a total identity crisis and I think moving here with a child I was immediately kind of lumped in with a lot of the mums and a lot of them I'm friends with now but I think for me it was just a real I kind of wanted to say to people like this isn't who I am even though it obviously was and it still is motherhood isn't my identity it's sort of part of my life I suppose as it is with everyone but it's definitely there's there's more to me than being a mum and I think that was something that I struggled with and then obviously the guilt of feeling that you're not loving being a mother is quite complicated one as well and I was working in um, RPR in London and moving to Margate it was no work and this was pre-COVID so working from home wasn't really an option and the commute's an hour and a half and when you've got a baby and you want to go back to work, it's expensive, basically. So, it, you know, there was a kind of, I knew it was career suicide in that respect, but obviously something new came out of it and I was able to do my art a lot more. I also got pregnant with twins within the first year of moving here. So I had a one-year-old and then twins when my eldest was 18 months. So I had three children under two. So that was also isolating for very many other reasons just logistically trying to move them around I can imagine yeah and also like seeing people was really difficult because I didn't have many people with that many children do you know what I mean so it was like trying to explain to someone that to get out was going to be difficult you know and then when you do go out I had three children in nappies you know it's like then also having to carry all the stuff put one on my back have a double push chair you know it was just like you know to see me walking up the hills in Margate it's just like Oh, smart. Like doing the Duke of Edinburgh Award or something, you know. Like, <laughs> hiking boots on, raincoat, off I go. <laughs> Earmuffs. So you mentioned that you went to art school. So have you always had a flair for creativity? And what pushed you in the direction of ceramics? Yes, I have always been 
an arty person, I suppose. And I've been fortunate enough to grow up in a family of quite creative people. My granny's an artist and art's in my family. So my granny actually is a sculptor as well. And so she works in clay, but it then is then turned into bronze, obviously, or a lot of 3D stuff. And growing up as a teenager, I was really into photography. So I did a bit of photography and did art and photography A-levels. And then I went to Camberwell and did a foundation for six months, but I just got so bored. And I found it actually really stifling and irritating. And in hindsight, I've got ADHD. And so I was thinking the other day about my education. Generally, I just didn't enjoy school. I found it very boring and tedious. And actually, it's because I, I've got ADHD that I just, my attention span is really short. But because I probably masked a lot of the time, and then it just came across that I was actually just really naughty. Anyway, the foundation, as I said, I just found it a bit dull. And also the house that I was living in, my friend's grandfather's house in London burnt down. And my portfolio was in the house at the time. So I lost a whole load of that work. And when I spoke to my tutor on the foundation course, he said, you've got to do the course again. And that was in about April, March, April. And I think at that point, I just thought, I don't want to do this again. Like not really enjoying it in the first place. So I basically just said, I'm just, my mum wanted me to move back home. And I was like, actually, I just moved to London and discovered going out, partying and being 19 and free. And I just... I ended up sofa surfing and got a job in PR and then I just worked. But I've always been doing life drawing or kind of making work that I wouldn't have called art, I suppose, sort of like body prints of when I was pregnant and moulds of my children's body parts when they were babies and paintings and drawings around the house. Just I've always just made stuff. I just have I've sort of like I have to use my hands. And actually, I've had someone at the studios, Gazelle, at the studios has been working with me in my studio. She's like, she looks around my studio and she's like, I just feel like this is the studio of a 60-year-old man. It's got everything that you need. It's got like the drill, this sanding thing, that thing, a load of plaster, a load of clay, a load of like a saw. You know, it's a, and it is, it's just like that kind of, you know, I do just love doing stuff and building stuff. And I think also that is another thing with early motherhood is that you're just rendered useless because you just... I mean, you're not useless, you're making, creating, supporting life, but it's that thing like where you have to sit and breastfeed or you have to wait for the nap. And, you know, it's like that was a hugely difficult transition for me. Like nobody can tell you that that's what it's like. Or maybe no one did tell me or I didn't listen and probably the latter. I just found it infuriating, like not being able to do stuff. And again, with pregnancy, just like there's nothing like that exhaustion. And I think that was, I found that hugely frustrating. But so now I feel that I'm able to, just go for it. I can just make whatever I want now. How cool is that? I'm currently crafting cow hearts and it's just fun. It's great fun. What pushed you in the direction of ceramics? Oh yeah, so um, Idle House Clay Space, which is just, I can't say anything that is not amazing about Clay Space. I'd like to say I graduated from Clay Space. I would go and do the evening class once a week. It was like a two hour evening class that I'd go and just some of the stuff I made with them was just, I think I've thrown it in the wind because it's just like the most repulsive things. Like I made these incense holders that were shaped like a vagina that said, <laughs> smile, it's the second best thing you can do with your lips. Because there's something that my husband's parents have got on the, their bathroom wall. They've got this like little, not, not a vagina and says that, but they've got like a little chalkboard 
that says that next to the mirror. And I just always, I find that kind of thing, you know, this is like all leads into my practice with domesticity and this idea of the home and like, and who we are as people. Cause I just was like, wow, that is the weirdest thing I've ever seen to have hanging in the home. But it's been made, it's been bought from a shop. It just fascinated me and just always made me laugh. And so I made these weird incense holders. I don't know. Anyway, they were given to people as Christmas presents. And then I think stolen back and I think one big, so I just couldn't even bet. They were just like the most disgusting thing. The play space enabled me to just make weird stuff and do weird things. And I was just that thing of it being 3D, like using my hands and not so much my brain. And then, you know, it's like there's something about that kind of tactile nature of it that's when you're doing a painting that can be exhausting. But mentally, I feel that painting can take up so much of your concentration. And same with drawing, especially when from life. Um, but I think just generally, actually, whereas when I'm making something in 3D, I feel like I'm focusing on something and it's not taking everything out of me. So anyway, so that was great. And then actually clay space during the lockdown, I was able to go and work in their basement when they were closed. They had a system based on the social distance. So I think I had like one afternoon a week and two afternoons a week where I could go in. And that was, it really saved me actually, because my mum had died just before lockdown not a COVID shed cancer so I was really really struggling with three really small kids in the lockdown situation and my husband was able to go to work and he's a music producer in his music studio so I was again that isolated feeling was really full-on during that time so just being able to leave my house and go and make I started making animals then I made the Zodiac series she came to because I exhibited it at my house. Yeah, so you did. Yeah, so that was play space. Thank you so much for everything. Amazing. That's incredible that they opened up their basement to allow people to use the facilities. How amazing is that? I just really felt that they saw me because during the lockdown, I'd been buying clay from them. They would drop off clay, so I was making stuff at home, and then you could get back to be fired. It was one of these processes, and actually, just shortly after my mum died, I just couldn't not use my hands so I was either making something out of clay or if I didn't have clay I was drawing and I was drawing these like weird kind of totally make-believe animals with like a bird with lion's feet but it was like I just had to keep doing this it was almost like an expulsion from my brain it was never anything really dark it was almost just like the need to be in a kind of maybe a fantasy I don't know I don't know so actually the fact that they saw and recognized that I was I wouldn't say in need, but I was definitely, I would have been, you know, it was, it was, well, look what's happened, you know, it's, uh, you know so, um, yeah, it was great. Chase Space were amazing for that, for doing things like that for people. I watched a really beautiful video interview you did with Art on a Postcard where you mentioned that art is your therapy. And so what way do you find it therapeutic? And is it something that you found yourself searching for? I mean, you already kind of touched on that, but. Yeah, I think Art on a Postcard, again, Going back to people that have sort of recognised me or seen me, Gemma Pepe, she's also someone that's just always been fully encouraging and supportive as well. So I think surrounding myself with these amazing people has been the best way to kind of keep going. But I think, and in terms of a therapy, that encouragement, I suppose, it's not a forced encouragement, though. It's kind of like, here's the tools, now it's up to you sort of thing. And I think clay being so physical, and I'm a very active but I move around a lot I like hardly sit down so it's kind of being able to whether or not I'm sitting down and working but with clay it's kind of like you know you can 
pound it, you can drop it, you can bend it, you can mold it, but it's also quite fragile. So there's also, you have to have a bit of respect for it as well. And I think clay also, because I am someone that wants immediacy and works so fast, you have to respect that you can't build around the clay is too wet. So you have to leave it to dry a little bit and that might be overnight. And then you can go back to it and then work a bit more. And then you have to leave it to be completely dry before you can fire it. And then firing it takes sometimes 12 hours to heat up and 24 hours to cool down. So it's a day and a half in the kiln. Then it comes out of the kiln and then you've got to glaze it and do the same thing again. Or it might not work. Or it might not turn out how you expect it to. And, you know, that's then maybe three days have passed and you've got to think about it again. So I think the fact that I'm so fast and immediate, it's almost like uh, the reason I've chosen ceramics as my main outlet is because it forces me to slow down or take a step back and look at what I've done or reevaluate things. But I also think, I was thinking about this the other day, that maybe because I do have such a short attention span, that the fact that I make something with clay and then it disappears from my brain and it's like, and I quite like to think when I shut the door of the kiln, like it's not my problem. And then when I reopen the kiln, I'm like, I've got a whole new idea, you know? So it's and it quite often that's what you're confronted with. It's like something looks different once it's been fired or you think, oh, and then it, I suppose that time to reflect or maybe I've started work. Well, not maybe I would have definitely started to work on something else or I would have glazed something else. You know, it's kind of having, having that. So that's been a therapy in many ways because it's just sort of kind of be a bit zen about things, I suppose, and take stock. But I think also for me, art is a communication that I can say things that I don't know how to say with words. And I think trying to describe a feeling that maybe is indescribable linguistically, I can do with drawing or building with my energy as well. I think my energy is something that comes across in my practice. So I feel that it's kind of familiar and I think that's the thing that I again in the introduction you said is that if I can create something familiar that someone else will look at and understand then for me I've done what I wanted to do my intention is that others that although we're all completely different there's a common thread that we're all probably going through very similar things but a lot of people don't have a language for that you know we don't have language for our emotions a lot of us and if we do sometimes it's hard to convey or someone doesn't you know people aren't necessarily there to listen yeah and also humorous, like I like to be funny with my work or I like to try and things, not take things too seriously or create something that someone looks at and just is like, what the hell is that? You know, it's funny. And it's quite often to do with sex or just basically poking fun at ourselves, I suppose, and, and myself mostly. Yeah, I guess that softens things. I was going to ask about your attention span because obviously the whole process of ceramics is so long because like you say, you do have to wait. There is a lot of waiting involved, but then actually what you say is so true. You're immediately getting something out where you would agonize over yeah. a certain brush stroke of an oil painting for weeks, months. It is so much more immediate. And like you say, you close that kiln door and that's it. All of the control has been taken away from you. Yeah, exactly. And obviously, to a certain extent, it hasn't because it's up to me how I fire and how I've built the piece. And I suppose that, again, is like that whole thing about self-discipline. Also, I work a lot with my broken pieces. So, yeah, I did a, um, a tile mural made out of all the tiles that I'd made that are broken by just, I guess, sort of mosaicing them back together and using the breakages to create an image. And then, you know, quite often, like kintsugi in Japanese ceramics, when you uh, mend ceramic with gold 
that's something that I do a lot as well. And again, sometimes people ask me, have you put that on then? It's like, no, I don't. That's, it's a broken bowl, but I've just glued it back together with, it's probably stronger than the ceramic. So it's an even stronger piece at that point. Then at that point also, I put more of my own energy into the piece. So it's kind of even more me. And I also think like human beings, like sometimes we do break. And so actually, let's just mend it. And that's us, like a version of us, I suppose, a version of me, a version of one. And artists throughout time have been slashing canvases. Yeah, and if you go to a major museum or gallery and look at some of the kind of old sculptures, the noses are off or the arm's not there, or, you know, and it's, it doesn't make it any less of an artwork. It's just the stories. Obviously, that's hundreds of years old, whereas my work is fresh out of a kiln. But it's, I think it's still that the, the thing where just... And again, with art, I think, you know, a lot of artists, only they know about the bits that are wrong, whereas the viewer is never really aware because the viewer just sees what the artist presents. Whereas as an artist, like, but that green's not right or that shape's not right or I wanted it to be more like this or more like that. No one actually knows except for you. So it's like when you're sat there procrastinating or feeling really down about work you've done, it's probably only you that can see it. You know, it's accepting, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the imperfections. Yeah, exactly. That's a part of it. That's a part of the process. So one thing that isn't spoken much in general in our society is grief and the everlasting effect it has on those who lose someone close to them. It's become this taboo subject, which people skirt around. And I didn't want to do that. We've already kind of spoken about it, but we both lost parents at a similar time. And I think I started a gallery as a direct result of that, as well as motherhood and that weird confidence that it suddenly gives you. And you began working with your ceramics. How do you deal with grief? How do you interpret this into your work? And do you find some sense of ease or release through it? Uh, okay, I'll answer. I'll try and answer them in order. So, was the first one? How do you work with grief? How do you deal with grief? Um, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I think grief is not something you can deal with. I think I can strongly remember after my mum died thinking that I wished I was a cassette tape that I could press fast forward on because I just wanted to fast forward time so that I wouldn't be feeling as bad as I was feeling at the time because I just couldn't believe very similar to having a baby when you have a baby I can't believe that people are doing this every second because the overwhelming feeling of love and amazement and you know all of that you're just like what the hell how on earth is people functioning when they're like I've just give you know it's like someone phoned you and you're like I can't I've just given birth like oh my god you know it's like it's kind of a phenomenal feeling and I remember my mum died I was like how can why, why, why are you sending me a bill through the post? Like my mum's just died. Like, do you know, it's that feeling of kind of like the world changes, your world changes. And it's kind of almost, I kind of just, I had this strong visual thing in my mind of like a globe with me on, on the top, completely out of proportion. The globe's tiny. I'm probably like half the size of it. And after a death, the globe twists around and then me standing on it has fallen over. It's like when you spin round and round in circles. Yeah, so it's just that thing of like when you've fallen over and it's like you've got to just stand up and learn to walk again in a way. It's like the world is on axis and everything is different and that's never going to change. But it's only you. So it's not, you know, trying to explain that to other people that don't actually care that you've lost someone, although we don't lose them, maybe they die, but who doesn't care that someone close to you has died. And so it's kind of, 
it's a different perspective. It's a whole new way of looking at the world. Like there's everything changes color in a way. Everything changes speed. Everything changes. Just everything changes, and it's kind of. So in terms of how do I deal with that, I think it's there's no dealing. It's just that whole thing of like it's just learning a new me, I suppose. Although it's still me in there, and also not trying to hide from it and not trying to pretend and some days I find it really really hard and I think all of this around me that my mum doesn't know about has never seen you know and I, that's actually the ABC of me kind of came to my initial idea was thinking about all the things in my life that she doesn't know about in life perhaps so she doesn't know about two of her grandchildren she doesn't know about COVID she doesn't know about Rishi Sunak she doesn't know about <laughs> I can't even think right now, but there's like so much that she doesn't, she doesn't know I'm an artist. She doesn't know, she hasn't seen my new kitchen. Just sort of little things like that, that kind of uh, I find very, very difficult to comprehend. And I can't really think about it too much. And I think having children, like today I had the girls nativity and I was just thinking about my mum, but it wasn't as hard as the first nativity. And I think this is the thing with grief as well, is that there's always a first which are always really difficult. But then at the same time, sometimes the mundane is harder because that's when you realise that you're not you're not with them or they're not here. And obviously my kitchen table is made with tiles that are glazed with her ashes. And that for me is a real I'm just looking at it now. It's just like such a nice thing to have at home. She's just always here, I suppose. And of course, it's not her. It's never, you know, that's that's never there. But talking about her with the children and stuff, but it's um, grief's really difficult, really, really difficult. I totally felt like November 2019. And I was like, the world should stop. Why is the world still going? Like, why, like you say, why are you sending me a bill? Why? And then lockdown happened. And I was like, this is exactly what should have happened. Like when my dad died, the world should have stopped in this exact way. Exactly. And that's exactly what happened with me. So my mum died in January 2020 and we went into lockdown at the end. And when she died, I remember coming back to Margate because I was at her house. She died at home and someone said something about coronavirus. I was like, what the hell is coronavirus? And obviously it'd been in the news, everyone talking about it, but I'd been so consumed with my mum that I hadn't bothered listening to the news or turning it on. And I was like, what the hell? And then we went into lockdown. And exactly as you said, I was like, well, obviously this is what happens because nothing can be the same. And I used to think she's done this. <laughs> she said, right, I'm not around. None of you can go out. None of you can do anything. This is your punishment world. So yeah, I, I hear you on that, that actually in a way the world stopping was an appropriate reaction to my mum dying. But then obviously the news was filled with 750 people died today, 1,000 people died today. So, you know, and I was just like, I, I then I think I've almost turned the news off completely since then. Yeah, it's bizarre, isn't it? It's really bizarre. And I actually drew a lot of comparisons between death and birth in many ways for quiet, complete life change kind of no one really understands unless they've been through it or it's hard to explain to someone unless they've been through it and that kind of yeah and I think when I meet people who have also experienced grief in this way it's it's a comfort I suppose to know that life goes on after death and as you say we all experience it at some point in our life yeah and I think also that whole thing of 
you know, I've never been one to think like to downplay any, any if I feel sad about something, but oh, come on, she wouldn't have wanted you to feel like this because that's not the truth. Like my mom would have wanted, you know, she would have been devastated if we'd all just been like, oh, well, da, da, da. it's like, no, like, it's like uh, that thing about grief reflecting love, of course, you have to feel, you have to feel the sadness and as a memory almost. But I think that um, it's also just knowing that I'm living my life and you really do only get one one go at it. So it's one honor that. Yeah. So how do I interpret it? You know, again, it is me. And I suppose my work interprets my life or processes my emotions through that. And I think also when my mum died, one of the first things I thought shortly after she died, like literally a few hours, was I can get a neck tattoo. Now, I would never get a neck tattoo. But there was this feeling, especially of, I suppose, one's mother. I felt strangely liberated, kind of like when you take your seatbelt off in a car and you're like, Woo! you know, it's that kind of, you know, you shouldn't be doing it, but you are. And I felt this kind of like, I don't know, it was weird. And I think in that respect, I don't make art because she's dead, but I make art because she's dead. Does that make sense? It doesn't make sense. It's kind of that thing of like, okay, well, I've got to do this now because I don't have much else choice. You know, it's like I can't faff around and waste any more of my time, I suppose. Not that I was really faffing around before with three small children, but I think I just felt a need to to create something. I mean, sounds quite selfish, doesn't it? No, not at all. Because it's like a sudden realisation that actually life ends and it doesn't matter how much you're loved, how much you're, you know, needed in the world, like life ends. And like you say, you've only got this one opportunity. Why would you not do something that you're like, oh, but it's risky? Yeah. There's like all of those conflicting things where you're constantly like all doubting yourself and then you just suddenly think, well, no, now is my time. I'm just going to do it. And if it doesn't work, then I do something else. Exactly, exactly. And I think also it's that thing of like, you know, like when you die, you don't take anything with you. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, I'm not trying to risk losing my house. Or I'm not that selfish. But I think there is that thing, like you suddenly realise what matters. For me, I thought I've got my children, I've got my health, I've got people around me. I've got this option and actually being creative wasn't an option, but there was an option not to fulfil it. Do you know, so it's kind of like, and I suppose that's almost um, capitalism gave me the option not to fulfill it because it was like, no, get a job, do the thing. And I was like, actually, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go down that path. So here I am, I suppose. And very sadly lost a cousin last summer as well. He, he was only 23 and drowned in the river, which was a just like the most awful tragedy to ever happen to any family. And that just confirmed to me all of those thoughts and feelings of, you know, live life, you know, and he was someone that really lived life as well. You know, he didn't wait around. He hardly ever had a phone on him because he'd lost it or left it somewhere because it didn't matter to him. You know, he just wanted to go and see people and talk to people and be with people and do great fun things, but, you know, not in a selfish way, but he, you know, he was just, he was always there. And I think that was something that I felt was like the availability of being there and present and doing what you love with the people you love. And so I think that was for me another reason to just be like do you know what I've got to do this for for myself but in almost in honor of these people that aren't able to carry on living in that way you know so grief is almost like you know you live with it don't you you just it's something that once you have it it's there there's no point trying to avoid it I think it's better to embrace it and 
And also just know that you're you're going to have some days when it's going to feel really, really horrible and you don't want to believe it, right? And you, go, you kind of can't really imagine. And then other days you're more joyful about it. Like sometimes something will happen. Like sometimes there's a cat at the studio. I've got a roof light on my studio and sometimes there's a cat that comes and looks through the window and I always laugh to myself, like, mum, mum. And also I really freak out the children with it. Sometimes if you hear a noise, they're like, what's that noise? I'm like, mum? Mom, and they're like, wait, is there a ghost? I'm like, yeah, yeah, she's, she's here somewhere. They get really freaked out by that. You can have a laugh with it. And also that she would just love to know that she was like teasing us wherever, whatever she's become on my kitchen table. So talking of your kitchen table, and so you said that you used the ashes of your mum in the tile glaze, which is on top of a, a table that was in your solo show, ABC of Me. And so to me, this is an insanely fascinating process because I never knew that you could do this obviously when my dad died I was like oh maybe I'll get like some earrings made out of his ashes I know you can do all that kind of diamonds (laughs) (laughs) I had never thought about putting it into a glaze so explain the whole process to me like how did you find out about it well this is obviously also thanks to clay space being amazing but during my time in their basement I was uh, making glazes as well so that was really fun and a whole world of madness you kind of feel like a mad scientist but with glaze materials there's a few simple ingredients that almost like cooking so like to make a cake you need eggs flour sugar butter so with glazing when you make a glaze it's quite similar except that you can add 0.01 gram of chrome and it will change the whole color of your glaze into something completely different one of the ingredients, so to speak, is a kind of calcium type product. I'm someone who is like much more professional than me at making glazes. It's going to get all across with how I'm explaining this. But it's bone ash, which is obviously the calcium that you get from bones. I think you can do, you can probably use anything from shells, from the oysters on the beach, for example, all sorts of different types of similar product. And you can actually buy bone ash from a potter's flying company. So when I found this out, obviously, I actually found this out before my mum had died and I thought, wow, so like you, yeah, I was like, that's amazing. And I had a couple of cat's ashes. I was like, okay, I might try and make a glaze out of Mr. Wiggles. So I started making some glazing with um, these cat's ashes and I didn't really think anything of it. And the, it was, they were sort of, they were quite pathetic attempts at glazing. It was also quite hard to find the colors that I wanted with using this ingredient and so I just kind of potted about and then I didn't have the idea before she had died to do it with her but she wanted us to spread her ashes in about 27 different places and I don't think it's because she wanted specifically to be in those 27 places but I think she wanted us as a family to all gather in those places and remember her and COVID happened and so we didn't go to any of the places together and then life has since happened and there's lots more children and my brother's moved Wales, so he lives the other side. My dad's got a new partner. There's just like a few things that have meant it's not been that easy for us to go to New York and spread her ashes or go to the Alps and spread her ashes. So also something that my dad had said to me which I hadn't ever really thought about was that he wanted to bury all of her ashes in one place, which I was you can't do that because she said she didn't want that to happen but he said he wanted to go and sit somewhere with her and that really struck me because I hadn't even considered that which sounds bizarre but I suppose when someone's not buried and when I had this idea of their ashes being everywhere 
And then I thought, wow, that's a totally different experience to his grief, you know? So selfishly, I thought, well, actually, I quite want to go and see. So when I was coming up with this exhibition, I thought, I'm going to make a table, which is her, basically. And that's the whole idea is as a woman, you are in the kitchen, you're serving, you're available, you're there. The whole exhibition then ideas kind of comes born from that. So I started making test glazes with Mr. Wiggles and Ginge while wrapping my teacup. <laughs> I just had to look through a few recipes with colours that I liked, colours I wanted to use. They all had to be the same firing temperatures because obviously I was firing all on one piece. And also draw a design for the table that represented my mum and also was a colour that I could live with as my kitchen table. You know, there was these kind of various elements. Some very important, some not so important. So I just started developing it that way. And one of the weird things that I had to do was pulverise the ashes a bit more than they already were. So the cat's ashes, one of the cats was very ash-like, whereas one of the cats was quite gritty. So those ashes I had to put through a pestle and mortar and then kind of push through a, a metal sieve, basically. And actually, when I started doing that, I got really queasy and sort of, you know, when you get that feeling in your throat, you're like, whoa, like, I just felt very sick. And I think I had this idea of it being my mom that it just, it felt weird to me. But actually, when it came to doing it with my mum's ashes, I had managed to desensitise myself, I think, by using the cat. And I had also reached out to a few people and said, how would you feel about brushing up my mum's ashes? And actually, no one had, had said, yeah, sure, I'll do it. Most people were like, oh, I don't know how I feel about that. And then I also thought, I don't know how I feel about asking someone who maybe doesn't know my mum or even asking someone that did know my mum felt a bit much. And it is so personal. Anyway, goes without saying. And now I also just kept thinking that she'd just be sort of horrified at me and also probably it would be expected, I guess. So, yeah, and then I made these glazes and I've still got quite a lot of the glazes in the studio which I'm working out what to do with I think I'll probably make pots for family members to then have her at home in it's interesting isn't it the whole idea of ashes as well because when I die and my children just going to be left with their grandmother's ashes what are they going to do with them do you know what I mean it's like a funny thing isn't it you know whereas when you are buried you are well there you're done or your your ashes are scattered so it's kind of I don't want to just be holding on to also with the ashes in the glazes it's hard yet I maybe use like less than 100 grams of ashes in total which is a tiny amount yeah so i think my dad was quite freaked out and kind of grossed out by the idea but i've just managed to kind of get along with it now it's not weird it's quite nice and the children they love it when we move the kitchen table in here lemony my eldest said we were sat down and she said now it's like every time we have breakfast we're sitting in grandma's lap and i was like you know you couldn't have said a more perfect sentence for justifying that absolutely I had a cousin that died really young and I remember that his mum kept his ashes in their house and I was like, that's so weird. And then when my dad died, I was like, I want my dad with me. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to like scatter him. I don't want to, you know, put him in a place where I never go and visit. He never knew me when I moved to Margate. And so it's like, well, then I'm going to have to travel all the way to where he was living. or, You know, like I want him here, like with us seeing the house you know like I don't know there's a comfort in having him close by 
Exactly. And also watching Roman as well. So, you know, that was something I felt like when I've collected a bit of my mom's ashes for my dad, he couldn't watch me do it. I think he didn't like the idea of splitting her up, which I didn't really understand. You know, it's all so personal how we feel about these things. And my brother had some in his house. And my brother, since my mom died, has had two children that she never knew about. And I've, I've still got her. It's in the most revolting plastic bucket, but it's like on the shelf in the living room where the children watch TV and play. And actually, it's so nice to have her at home with us. And again, I know exactly what you're saying. It's all a bit, seems a bit weird. But again, that thing of having her around the kitchen table, you know, like you said, if her absence are scattered in some woods or beach or garden or whatever, to go and remember her, you're going to travel to the garden and inevitably you're probably going to be thinking about something different. It's not going to be a convenient time to remember. Da, 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 da. And so actually I thought having her in the kitchen for me is like the kitchen's where you have your arguments, your joyous moments, your hard moments, your tired moments, your, when you're ill, when you're bored. You know, and there's that, those times when you want your mum when we're going through those things or just to sit and have dinner and think about her because she's there. I hadn't dreamed about her. I had any dreams about her since she died. I had one we were having the most awful argument and it was just it was one of those horrible dreams where you wake up and you're just like great and then when I started making the glazes I had so many dreams about her and it was so lovely so it was kind of welcoming her back after feeling so much sadness from from her death I think it was it was really amazing actually a real processing moment for me so yeah I recommend if anyone's got any ashes going to spare to do something creative for them. <laughs> Why not? Exactly. Like you say, what else are you going to do with them? <laughs> I know. And like you said, like you do, you get so many. There's so many ashes. Like you really can have a teaspoon for, for something, you know, that you're not going to think. I mean, I'm not saying pour them down the drain or anything, but you know, there's, there's, there's enough. Yeah. And I also I'd say that like, I've got her in a white plastic bucket that I'd usually use in the studio for make putting glasses in. And I say it like that, but then also the tube we picked her up from the crematorium in is like the most disgusting. It's got like some really naff picture of some sunflowers or some poppies or something on it. And you know, and you're just like, I think she'd probably rather be in the plastic bucket in my house than in a tube. <laughs> the whole thing is very strange. It's very strange, but I think it's also. Um, you know, and when it's so fresh, it's really, really hard. And I think only time with grief is something that, you know, everyone says it doesn't get easier. You just learn to live with it. And I think that's the truth of it, isn't it? Anyway, and also it's quite fun making dead mum jokes to people just to make them feel uncomfortable. I know it is, isn't it? And the same. <laughs> it's um, all we've got. It's all exactly, we've got. Exactly that. But I do think it's like you were saying earlier about the identity, like having this identity of, motherhood that's only like one part of you then grief becomes this other part of you right let's say you've got like all these different hats I guess these these sides to your personality your identity and one of them like when you experience grief of someone really close and then that just becomes like another part yeah totally and I think also I think losing a mother and I don't know about your relationship with your father or depending or depends on your relationship I suppose like when my mum died, my mum was a real anchor in terms of me and my decisions and my life. And, you know, your mum was the person that you call to, like, whine at about nothing. You will listen and will give you shit advice or not give you advice or tell you to stop being annoying or, do you know what I mean? Like, care about the things that no one else cares about. So I think losing my mum was a huge identity. Like, I kind of had to figure myself out again because I didn't have the person to call to say help or how do I do this or you know any of that 
Frida Kahlo talked about it because her mum died. I don't know how old she and her mum, but my mum was only 54, so it was a real tragic. I was 31, 30, but also because I had the small children, it was kind of that time of my life when I really was looking for someone to help answer questions like, did I do that as a child? What is normal? What isn't normal? All of these things. And my mum was ill before she died, so there was also a period of time while she was still alive, but I didn't want to call her and bother her or, you know, burden her with my problems, which was nothing in comparison. Although, in hindsight, probably that's, she would have loved to listen to me waffling on about nappings or whatever. You know, there's hindsight after death can be difficult because I, I don't like to think of myself as having any regrets and because you can't change everything, can you? So I think it's just, I mean, learning from that and that's that side of your personality that you were talking about just now it's like you've had a realization in some ways I feel sorry for people that haven't been through something significant like that because I think you won't learn about yourself in the same way maybe it's just fast forwarded when you experience grief at a younger age it's fast forwarded in terms of your development I don't know emotionally I don't know god we could just go on for hours about it I think (laughs) definitely could the whole thing isn't it you know in in terms of how it affects you well I'm gonna move the conversation finally away from grief (laughs) so we mentioned that you're a studio holder Tracy I mean TKE Studios how is it being a part of this important community and I know that you had your studio at home before this so how has your practice evolved since you have moved there so Tracy's another person who saw me and recognised me in a way that I could never have imagined. When I was making work at Clay Space, I was also having some building work done on my house and I said to the builder, I'm going to make the tiles for the kitchen. And I hadn't actually thought that through. I just decided at that point I wanted to do something because also it was after COVID. I think I was bored. I didn't have a job because of COVID and the kids and blah, blah. So I set myself the task of making these tiles. And some of the illustrations on the tiles are women artists that have inspired me. And so I drew an illustration of Tracy Emmons, everyone I've ever slept with, a tent. And then it's so so iconic and it doesn't exist anymore either. So it's kind of like one of those things where I was like, okay, that's kind of an homage, so to speak. And then I was at, I had been working at Resort Studios, which is an art studio that's now at Dreamland. I'd been working there for a couple of years and I went to an exhibition that was opening there. I might have even had some work in there. I thought I might have had a sculpture or something in it. And I went up to the private view and Tracy was there with Rob Diamond, who I'd met through Bidding in Margate. And he introduced me to Tracy and I said, nice to meet you. And then I said, oh, I've, I've actually made a tile of your artwork. Let me show you. And so I showed her and she said, oh, are you an artist? And I said, no, 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 I just, I just do think this. She went, oh, I think we're in this question. I sort of like made a sort of humble, like an excuse for how it wasn't the truth. And then um, off I went on my merry way. And then I, there was a company called Margate Tile Works, which was making tiles and they had decided to give it up and they had a shed basically a good old mechanics, which they wanted to sublet before they moved out. And they also had a whole load of equipment to sell. So I contacted them and said, look, I think I'm interested. Can I sublet? And I'll also probably buy some of your equipment. It was a perfect thing. So I kind of moved into the shed, which was just behind my house. And this was in summertime. And I, when I was working in this mechanics, I had the big double doors. I always opened the double doors. I had my music playing and I had my little studio. So it was just really like a cute little thing. And once Tracy walked past and stuck her head in the door, not knowing it was me. And she said, oh, I just heard this music playing. And I thought, 
you know, she was like, I could just sense like a really nice atmosphere sort of thing. She was with a friend and I said, oh, come in. And I, I said, I made, I made the tile. Do you remember? And she went, oh, where is it? And it obviously, well, it was in my house. I said, no, it's, it's in my house. Anyway, she then sort of every now and again would pop her head into the studio to say hello, which I obviously found very charming and lovely. And then I said, well, why don't you come to my house for a cup of tea and I'll show you the tile in situ in my kitchen. She said, okay, all right. Which was also very surreal. And she came over and sat in my kitchen and looked at the tiles. And I remember thinking, if only I could call my mum and tell her that going out for a cup of tea. Do you know, it was just surreal, just absolutely surreal, weird moment in my life where I was just like, what the f is going on? How has this happened? Anyway, I had a lovely cup of tea with Tracy and then um, off she went. And then at the time, I, as you said, that the studio I was subletting from. And then um, I was working in my home studio and she'd walk past and she'd knock on the window and wave at me. And then she contacted me and said, I've got this studio complex. I think you might be interested. And at the time I was just, again, I wasn't really taking myself seriously as an artist. I said, oh, I can't afford it. Oh, I don't know. You know da, 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 da. And I was like, I ended up subletting a garage or some builders and I was sort of a bit of a nomad. Anyway, she showed me around these studios and she'd also found the studio I'm in now and said, I think this studio is for you, that you can shut your door and it's almost like a room of one's own. You know, it's like, this is for you. There's not sharing with anyone. You can lock it. It's not got your kids coming in and looking at what you're doing or poking around at things. And I just it really it made me cry, actually, because I felt, again, that thing about being seen, it was like she, I couldn't believe that this was happening to me. I couldn't believe that. Tracy Emin had got a space and also the studios, as you know, so close to my house. It was kind of like, that was like probably my mum's, again, I can say that mum watching over me or something. Someone in the universe was keeping an eye on me, basically. So she offered me that space and I think I was one of the first people to move in. And we were there before all the locks were put on the doors or when they were still doing all the like snagging work. And I ended up having my kill. It wouldn't fit through the doorway, so I had to have it craned in through the roof which is very exciting. And then they had to have new windows put on. And it was just quite mad, actually. And then, so I was there in November and then everyone started moving in officially. There was a few of us. I think Jack was in there in November. Was, Lindsay moved in January. But basically, I was there in November and then people started moving in January and then the um, artist residents started moving in in March. And so sort of seeing when everyone's being strangers to now we're all friends and kind of, the relationships are there and I think just you know I pinch myself really that that's if you'd asked me nine years ago and I moved to Margate and I was felt like I was going through hell here to say look in in this much time this is going to be your situation I would have just I would have said you were tricking you know I would have been like what have you been smoking you're going mad because actually you can't really believe it but it is where I am and actually that's sort of again that whole thing about trying to take stock a bit all and take a big deep breath and take it all in I guess and it's been amazing Tracy's been you know she's very active in terms of her input into the studios she's around she comes in to see the artist residents to talk to them about their work and offer her crits with them so she always poke her head into my studio and say hello and I had my solo show there and also just being surrounded by other artists again it's just it's really a great place to be and we were saying so Lola's she lives with me, Lola Stongbrett. She's an abstract painter and she lodges with me and she's on the artist residency. And so we quite often talk about, you know, that's our common thing. It's sort of like having a work friend, I suppose, but we don't work together together. But it's that really nice, all different levels of people, different ages. Some people are doing museum exhibitions. Some people 
are just starting out. You know, it's like in all different practices as well. There's ceramics, there's three D, there's painting, there's drawing, there's illustration. It's all it's all different, and I think it's really nice actually to be able to share how we work and see others. And for me, because I didn't finish art school. I am loving being able to join in the crits, doing the life drawing, the access to the workshops that I'm offered as part of being a studio holder. That for me is great. So it's kind of like I'm sneaking in on all the course things as well. But it's also, I've got my assistant, Grace, who's been working with me. She's on the course. So that's been really nice to have someone working there. So I think it's been a real, like, in terms of creative community there, that's something that's that's been great. I feel very lucky, to be honest. And I didn't, you know, just to be invited down to have a studio there and allowed to stay <laughs> i'm being uh, facetious on that one but you know it's great it's really really great now there's that cafe the place to grow it's just opening on the corner which is the angelas and dorings and i think also potato caruso have opened this sort of like nurturing place to train people in hospitality so last week i had the most delicious ethiopian food and a couple of weeks before was something else equally delicious Italian so it's it's great it's brilliant really so thank you Tracy you know I went to summer fair and that just really opened my eyes on how much of a community it's become because you could see like everyone interacting it was a really playful event where everyone devised their own ridiculous art games for people to play yeah that was all instigated by Tracy and I know that initially it's like, oh, God, what are we going to do now? Why are we going to do this? Because we've all got our own things going on. So I think part of you is that I don't have... I actually didn't get involved in the summer fair because I was away that weekend and it was, I'm the only one at the studios with children. So obviously it's the summer holidays for me. So it's very hard for me to work at all in the summer holidays. But then to put that extra time into to do something else. But it, it was a real shame for me to miss it. And I was I was actually gutted. But as I said, because I was away that... I pre-booked the weekend away that weekend anyway. But it was this whole thing of, I guess, collaborating together, working together is, it's just fun. I love it. I love having people in my studio doing stuff with me as well. So I think it is just kind of enabling everyone. And the private views that we've had for the exhibitions have been really great. And you know, you've come along to some of the exhibitions there as well. And it's just another dimension to Margate's ever expanding and amazing art scene that, you know, like you were saying, just the other day that actually Margate's known globally. Absolutely. Like it is this tiny town, but it's already got such a burgeoning reputation. And, you know, also for, say, someone like you that Tracy can just pop in. Do you know what I mean? Like it's sort of unheard of in many places that you've got this level of artists or people. And there's people coming to town because of Carl Friedman, because of the Turner exhibitions as well. And, you know, naturally people are gravitating here, whether it's, visiting or more permanent people and yeah you can't ignore that so yeah it's exciting it's really exciting and yeah as I said like little old Margate you never expect it would you <laughs> the grubby street which actually you've just got so much charm about them if you're willing to look for it and also I do strongly feel that when you've got 50% of your horizon on the coast it can't be built on I just think there's something about having that space and that the energy is able to kind of stay you know, there's not suddenly we're going to come lots of high rises building up around us, but you know, there is always going to be the beach and the sea. That's safe. Yeah, and I think after living in London for such a long time, not really being able to see the sky. When I first moved here, I was just obsessed with the big sky because there's just so much sky all of a sudden. And the colours, you know, that whole thing about the colours that Turner was painting, and you kind of sometimes you look up at the sky and you just think, wow, you get it. 
you know, like you get this guys here and it sounds like such a cliche to say, but you really do notice that. And the light in Margate, sometimes it does just hit differently. There's something about it that you think is quite special. So yeah, no, I do feel lucky to live here and have it all. And yeah, as I said, the studio's on my doorstep. So perfect. Couldn't work out any better, could it? Perfect. No, I know I wall pitched myself actually. <laughs> So for me, your works blur the line between functionality versus sculpture. You recently shared a brilliant video on Instagram of a teapot you made with a spout spilt tea unpredictably when poured. And I love this. All of your works have this handmade feel where through the warp and the weft, we see the artist's hand. They are made by human hands and like humans, they are multifaceted. How important is this to your practice? And is it something which you embrace? This is like the most essential thing in my practice ever. And it's something that I feel very strongly that I want you to know that it's been touched. I want you to know that it's made, it's been touched. And it's so interesting that what you just said about when work sways between being functional and being sculptural. So for a long time, I have struggled with making sculptural work because I think the idea as a woman, women make art that is functional, whether it's tapestries or it always feels more craft, right? Because that's, again, maybe it's our our guilt or our just the society and the damn patriarchy is, uh, you know, we want to be useful. We want to make things that are able to be used. So that's why clay works for me. I want making tiles or making bowls or plates or mugs or jugs or jars or vases or whatever. And then with the illustrations on the tiles I thought this is great I've got the best of both here because I've got I'm creating these tiny canvases and it's funny when you price it as well because the price of a tile I don't feel that you can price it higher than a canvas but sometimes more work went into it because it's a firing but then art it isn't necessarily about how much work has gone into something you know this whole question starts to, to kind of be thrown up and quite often so like with my plates for example I really want people to use them to eat off but I haven't met anyone yet that is going to use them to eat off they just everyone says they want to hang them on the wall which is funny I guess someone who wanted to eat off of my plates would have to be quite rich and also not bothered if they break I suppose I eat off them but I eat off the second ones that are broken I haven't turned out how I wanted them to turn out and I funny enough hang up the ones that I like so I think yeah just this idea of making a sculpture to me feels quite vain but now I'm beginning to enjoy making sculptural pieces more and more. And I think something really nice about ceramics is that you can make a sculpture which then also features functional pieces as part of that. So jugs and vases that come from sculptures. You know, I'd love to actually have a symposium in Margate or anywhere about this idea of when art becomes useful, I suppose. You know, there's always that thing that in its essence and purest form, no one asked for art it's not something that is needed but we can argue that again you know that's imagine the world without music it would be be awful so I think in the same sense a world without art would be the same so I don't know what I'm saying that but I think it's why not have something useless but that looks pretty in your house but then why not have something that is useful and also looks pretty in your house I really loved the video and I saw that you did like an updated one quite recently Yes, yeah, so I'm touched. Have you ever seen those little bits of um, foil that you get for a wine bottle? They're like a bit of foil that you make a funnel and you stick them on the end of a wine bottle and then it pours the wine into a glass without that drip at the end. So 
had never tested this teapot. And actually, as I was saying at the beginning of the week, when I was pouring my redesign, I was like, I might actually, next time I'm making a teapot, consider it a bit more because I hadn't really even thought that it would be that difficult. Just like with where the spout goes and the handle and you don't want it too high and you don't want it too low and you want it kind of all of that. So then I just basically created a funnel that I'd attached to the end of the spout to try and make the departure of the tea smoother, which had done it a little bit, but not a lot. But actually also I had this idea of when I was creating the Zodiac series of having this like mad tea party, which is also where ABC of Me came from, which is just like having a table full of weird and wacky things that maybe didn't work. Just kind of like everyone at the table is a bit raucous and misbehaves and like the benches at ABC and me have got these molds of my children's bums on and there was just you know it's just that kind of um you just want it to be fun I suppose that's I think the main aim in, in my life is just to make everything fun as far as possible without being dangerous of course but also then there is a performative element to it as well that's what I was gonna say it was very yeah. performative like it definitely it's crying out to be a video piece yeah, and also, so I'd made these glug glug jugs. So, you know, the old Plymouth Gin glug glug jugs, which the way they're designed is with the air pocket. So when you pour the liquid, it then... And I really love this idea of me being, you can't shush me. So then I thought, well, what a perfect way to make a jug that even when you pour a jug that I've made, it's making a noise. So <laughs> I'd kind of come up with this design. And I started making these glug glug jugs. And again, it was just that. I wanted them to make a funny noise. You know, like I've got pots that are covered in boobs and vaginas and also mixed in with oranges and pears. So you kind of can't work out what you're looking at. And someone who came to my exhibition was like, is that a bum hole? Is that your bum hole? And I didn't really pay attention. I was like, yeah, yeah. You know, you're just sort of a bit distracted. And I was like, of course it is. And then I came to look at the piece that she was pointing to and it was the bottom of an apple. It was just like, where, you know, and I was like, actually, that's perfect. That's exactly what I'm talking about. It's like, what is that? Where is that coming from? And I think there is that performance element in all of my work. Definitely. I want you to get closer. I want you to get in. I want you to look. I want you to feel. I want you to just be a part of it, I suppose. Again, it comes with the human touch and making sure that you know. You can see the fingerprint. You know, it doesn't matter that there's the mark because I want you to know that that was me. And onto your current solo exhibition, Turner's Female Contemporaries in the cupboard at Liminal Gallery. Why did you want to use this to spotlight these artists? Um, how much research did you have to do into it? And were you surprised by how many of the women featured have been left under the radar? So when you first started putting the space in the gallery up, I just thought that was so brilliant. It was just such a, again, such a fun idea and so involved that as a viewer, you have to get right in there to go and look at it. And so in a way, I prefer it to like in any other normal gallery space walls where you can just stand and look around. It's like, no, you have to get down on your knees and get into that space. I thought, actually, what can I do with the Turner contemporary directly opposite? How can I create that space in a way that reflects me, not personally, but sort of, I suppose, as a female artist. And that was when I came up with thinking there's this whole huge multi-million pound gallery that has been based on one man of the time. And that got me to thinking about all the women at the same time who could have had the same opportunity had they been born a different sex. And that's when I came up with Turner's Female Contemporaries. And I hadn't really 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 underestimated how much research I'd need to do and actually that was the main bulk of the work for that so I can't remember how many tiles there are in total like 77 or something 
And I thought I'd have all British women. Well, it was completely stupid of me because that was impossible because I started going then Europe and America and Australia and Asia. But it was just really, really difficult to find. And a lot of the women were artists, but they were just someone's wife or someone's teacher or someone's daughter or, you know, they were rarely considered an artist. Some of them had no death dates or the death date was roughly guessed and then trying to research some of their artworks that they'd done. So I wanted to do portraits of all of them, ideally self-portraits, which I couldn't do. Self-portraits, I did as many as possible and then I moved on to portraits, but quite often the portraits were done by their husbands or done, you know, someone else. There's a few, but you can even find a portrait. There's none, just been lost to history. Yeah, exactly. And I kind of felt part of me, again, there was that feeling as I was drawing their portraits or copying their work or whatever, thinking to myself, well, at least in 150 years after I'm dead, someone is making a tile of my face. Maybe I've done my job, you know, maybe that's enough. But for some women, and this is something that, again, really spurred me on to being an artist. It was like for some women, their artwork was found in their attic after they died. And, you know, we know this about a lot of Van Gogh. You know, so many artists this happens to, but women especially, or maybe it's just thrown away or not used or ignored. And I think for me, this is, again, everything about that tiny space, like we're giving women just this tiny little space opposite this huge gallery, um, an opportunity to be seen. And, you know, the irony is not lost, shall we say. And obviously liminal, you know, it's a liminal space. It's run by women. I'm a woman. You just do a lot with women artists. So I felt that it was like a perfect space, really. And I'd love, I'd also love to do more on that. I don't know how much more I need to expand the time period, probably. But yeah, it's been fascinating. And I just also think that probably I'm here because they were there as well in, in many respects. So it's, again, honouring them as much as possible. And yeah. There is something quite shrine-like about it, isn't there? Like you were saying, you have to get on your knees. Yeah to see this little space and it's like dedicated to all of these amazing women and the whole space like the the floor is covered in your tiles all the walls are covered in your tiles all the walls are wonky all your beautiful tiles are all wonky and it's just it's a lovely experience and something someone spoke to me about on the night was that because they're not grouted in there is something more and again this goes back to what you were saying about work being sculptural functional it's like as soon as you grout those tiles in does that change the value of them or does that change how you see them or how you look at them I don't know it's very interesting I'd love to go and get a photo of just with just a candle in there and just with a kind of low lighting and as you said like a shrine because I think there's there is an honor an honor to them for sure yeah have a seance that's a great idea let's do that for the win yes <laughs> so Last two questions that I ask everyone. What do you enjoy the most about your practice? I just love just getting dirty and sort of making things, making mistakes. I don't know. I think it's just also the freedom that I find that you can't make. I, I just said making mistakes. I don't think with what I do, I can make mistakes because it's all just, it's a practice. It's called a practice for a reason, right? So it's just everything's developing and I suppose also another thing, the thing I really enjoy is looking at it with other people as well and like getting other people's impressions of it and talking to them about it and 
using it as communication. I think that you have such an incredible natural curiosity as well. So I had a show with Julia Ellen Lancaster and you came, I think, towards the end of the night on the private view and you were like, how did you do this? What what kind of glows did you use? Tell me, tell me about this process. And she was like, <laughs> usually I would never tell anyone this, but you were like so direct. You just had like such an amazing curiosity where you're almost like a sponge, just like absorbing all of this. Well, I think it is. It's like you never stop learning, do you? And it's not, I'm not asking her because I'm going to start copying no, her methods not. or processes. And if someone asked me, I'd be really happy to share. And talk. I think it is just, yeah, I find it really interesting talking to people about how they do stuff. What do you find the most frustrating about your practice? Not being able to do what I want, when I want. (laughs) I mean, I say that and I do actually sort of mean it. I think, you know, not being able to, but then maybe that's also part of if I was able to do everything I wanted when I wanted, maybe I wouldn't get the same results. I think with all artists, when the results aren't what I expected and I feel disappointed by it, and that's frustrating to me, if I want something to be a different way and then I feel I do feel disappointment or or lacking, that is very frustrating. So it's just trying to moving away from that, I suppose, or just or acknowledging that it's only me that knows it's different. Sometimes you really know that something's not meant to be like the way it is. But frustration is probably from my own personal disappointment when I don't haven't achieved something that I've wanted to, I suppose. But I think that's the same with everyone, whether whatever industry you're in. And then I also think that once you stop feeling like that then that's probably the time to give up <laughs> isn't it yeah I get the highs without the low as they say <laughs> once you're like right you know I've cracked it I'm the most perfect artist <laughs> that's like when you've completed the game isn't it have you seen the Ronnie O'Sullivan documentary on, it's on no. Amazon oh I love Ronnie O'Sullivan no Jack, you've got to watch it because he's obviously like just the best snooker player ever and it's that thing where he's like I know that I can win but that doesn't mean I want to stop. And it's quite interesting, that whole idea of like, but he also doesn't always know that he's going to win. You know, and I think probably it's the same when you're developing yourself, you know. I know I can go and make a pot, but I can make a better one or one that has different meaning or feels different. Or So it's that. It's just always looking for the next thing. The curiosity, there it is, coming at you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's all my questions. So Mercedes Workman, thank you so much for joining me today on the Liminal Gallery podcast. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. So nice to chat formally. <laughs> As opposed to informally. Most entirely. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> pleasure. Thank you so much. That was great. Turner's Female Contemporaries, a solo exhibition by Mercedes Workman, continues until the 10th of February at the Cupboard in Liminal Gallery at 34 Fort Hill in Margate. We're open Thursdays, Fridays and Saturdays, 11 until 4pm and outside these times by appointment. More information can be found on our website www.liminal-gallery.com. Thank you so much for listening to the Liminal Gallery podcast with me, Louise Fitzjohn, and I hope you'll join me for the next episode featuring Maud Watley, who had a solo exhibition in our main space entitled Haunches. Bye for now.